We're moving on, as I said, in our sermon series through the Gospel of Mark, and we're going to be in Mark chapter 14 today. You know, human relationships are so fragile and so fickle. I was thinking back on, on my life, and I was sharing a story with some uh, this, this week about a, a friend that I had as a, as a child uh, early on, up until kindergarten, and it was about kindergarten, first or second grade, that that friendship fell apart. Because, you know, friendships, and, and especially with, with, with in human relationships, our friendships ebb and flow based on the changes of our life circumstances and any number of different things. I mean, how many of your childhood friends are still actively involved in your life and intimately in friendship, living in friendship with you? I have some of my best friends in the world who stood next to me on my wedding day that I, I don't talk to every day, let alone see very often. And our friendships, as I said, ebb and they flow. And the arrival of social media, I think, has only made it worse. Because there's no real friendships in the area and in the realm of social media. Our friends are, friendships there are so weakened because in that area and in that realm, it is so easy for any perceived betrayal or failure as a friend to just break things down. And all we've got to do is take a single click and we can just defriend them. And we can just block them. For whatever perceived slight, for whatever failure as a friend to show up in the right way, we just click a button and they're gone. And so often we, as fallen human beings, suffering under sin in this world, can easily project our human failures as friends upon the Lord. And in doing that, we suffer fear and we suffer insecurity in His presence. And it's this fear and this insecurity that drives us away from God, just like it drove Adam and Eve away from His presence all the way back in the garden. Because I don't know about you, but I know my faults. I know my failures. I know the thoughts in my head and the feelings in my heart better than anyone in the world except for the Lord. I know my failures. Then most of my failures, many of them are not due to weaknesses or stumblings or anything outside of my control. Oftentimes, my faults, my failures, my sins are just that. Flagrant disobedience and rejection and rebellion against God and His will. And because of this, it's easy for me to feel unwelcomed and unwanted in the presence of God. And it's easy for me to think, you know, God loves me. I'm His child. He has to love me. But He must not like me very much right now. And since He doesn't like me much right now, He must not want me in His presence very much right now. And that becomes a barrier to my prayer life, to my time in His Word, to my worship in this place, because I'm projecting upon God my own insecurity, my own self-loathing, my own disappointment. And so instead of being drawn towards Him as a source of joy and peace, I withdraw from Him in fear and insecurity. And in this moment, what I need and what we need is a reminder of God's unfailing love and friendship, a reminder that we get in Mark chapter 14 this morning. Look with me, if you will, in Mark 14, verse 12. Mark writes, On the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, Where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he, said, he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. 
follow him, and wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready. There prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and to say to him one after another, is it I? He said to them, it is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man who by, the son of, who, by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, Even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, I, If I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you that you are our faithful friend. I thank you for your love and your grace, and I pray this morning that you would remind us of your love and your grace, of your satisfaction in Jesus Christ, of your pleasure in your Son, Jesus Christ, and root deep inside of our hearts the reality, Heavenly Father, that since we are in Christ, we share now your grace and your pleasure and your satisfaction. And let that become a source, Heavenly Father, of our life with you and for you in this world. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And amen. In these verses, we find Jesus and his disciples sharing a final meal together. But it's not just any meal. It is a very important meal in the life of the nation of Israel and for each and every one that is gathered around this table. It's Jesus' final meal, but it is a meal that points backwards in time to a very significant event in the life of Israel. It's a meal with incredible meaning that Jesus is going to infuse with even greater meaning. What meaningful meals do you and your family share? Think about it. Do you have a meal that you share each and every year with people in your family or people that are friends that has infused with actions or with uh, events that is just family tradition? We, we do this each and every year. The two that I most, think, uh, most often think of in relation to this, meals with meaning or, or with an, an element of the meal that has a specific meaning that oftentimes needs to be explained, are Thanksgiving and New Year's. Because Thanksgiving is something that we have instituted as a nation to constantly remind us of the help that we received from the natives when, when the pilgrims were struggling to eat. And it's this time of thanksgiving for all that God has done and what God has brought us through. And so we remember in that meal God's faithfulness to provide for us. 
and we celebrate his provision. But maybe it's New Year's, and you're looking forward to the year, and you know, I know from the South, and I grew up in a family, every New Year's we ate black-eyed peas. You still eat black-eyed peas? And what's in the middle of the black-eyed peas? Somewhere down in there. There's a dime. And what's that dime mean? If you get it, you're supposed to have good luck for the rest of the year. Nobody in my family ever got it, because it somehow always got stuck on the bottom of the pot. And nobody ever ended up, but we, we have meals that are infused with meanings, or elements of meals that are infused with meanings. And in this instance, Mark is indicating that the meal that the disciples seek to prepare, the meal over which Jesus is presiding and over which, or of which they all partake, is the meal that's known as the Jewish Passover. Now this was an annual feast which served as a vivid reminder of God's greatest act of redemption in the Old Testament of the time that God rescued his people, Israel, from in being in their enslavement in Egypt. While his people were there and enslaved, God rescued them through a series of prophetic plagues, and it culminated, it climaxed in the final plague that resulted in the death of every firstborn son in Egypt. And the only way that a household was protected from God's judgment was by the sacrifice of a spotless lamb the blood of which was then placed upon the doorframe of the house so that when God's angel came through to dispense the judgment of God, that angel would pass over any home that was marked by that sign of sacrifice. God commanded the people of Israel then to remember throughout their generations and teach the coming generations what he had done for them through the institution of this Passover feast. So each and every year, the people of Israel would travel to Jerusalem where the law required that they would sacrifice a spotless lamb for their family and for their friends or their neighbors. They would then take this lamb and all of those people that it stood for would gather together and they would take part in a meal that was filled with all kinds of elements that were symbolic representations and reminders of what the people of Israel had gone through in the Exodus and a reminder of God's redemption. And throughout the centuries, this meal was shaped into an elaborate ceremony. And Tim Keller summarizes it this way, that this meal included four points at which the presider, holding a glass of wine, got up and explained the feast's meaning. These four cups of wine represented the four promises made by God in Exodus chapter 6, verses 6 and 7. These promises were for the rescue from Egypt, for freedom from slavery, for redemption by God's power, and for a renewed relationship with God. So it's an elaborate meal broken up into those four segments at which the one who was presiding would teach all of those that were, that were there at the prompting of the youngest who was supposed to ask the question, why do we do this and what does it mean, essentially? And then whoever the head of the household was, the oldest male present, or whoever was presiding over the meal would then proceed to teach and remind them of God's power and his faithfulness to redeem his people. It's this meal that they are gathered together to celebrate, and it's this meal that Jesus infuses with a new and greater picture of God's redemption of his people. Jesus takes the bread, and he breaks it, and he distributes it to his disciples, inviting them to take it, to receive it, for it is his body. Then he takes the cup, which most likely was the third cup of the meal, the cup that celebrated God's redemption of his people. And after they drank of it, Jesus then announced that this is his blood, which establishes a new covenant between God and his people. 
These are the elements that we take even to this day in the Lord's Supper or in communion as it's known. It's a reminder, just like the Israelites were commanded to remember what God had done through Passover, the Lord's Supper, communion, is a reminder for the people of God of what God has accomplished for us in Jesus Christ. Jesus is the sacrifice, our perfect sacrificial lamb, our perfect Passover lamb that wiped out the requirement for any other sacrifices. He was the sacrifice to end all sacrifices. He is perfect, and he is spotless, and his body and his blood paid a higher price than had ever been paid by any sheep or goat or bull, a price for a greater redemption from an even greater enemy, which is sin and which is death. Jesus infuses this meal with that meaning. He's not only the host, he is the meaning of the meal. He is the one that every Passover feast throughout Israel's history had anticipated. He's the one that every communion celebration since has celebrated. He's the one whose sacrifice brought peace and the possibility of reconciliation. Despite our frequent thinking, he is not merely inviting or, or providing this meal for the ones who have it all together. Jesus is instead for the misfits and the mess-ups and the miscreants. He is for those who fail. And this is clear from the company that he keeps and the character of those that are around him. Just like you might have a, a special celebration in your family, when you are celebrating a big event, when you're getting ready for a, a graduation celebration or a wedding feast, who do you invite If you're like me, then you're inviting those that we love and those that we trust and those that we know love us. And on the surface, that would appear to be who's gathered around Jesus in this moment. But Mark makes it clear throughout this passage of Scripture that that is not in fact the case. That the character of this company is a flawed one. And Mark shows that to us not just in the story, but the way that he shapes the story. Mark is such a a wonderful storyteller. As he puts Jesus, literally, if you look in the text, he puts Jesus in the center of fallen people. He sandwiches Jesus in between these these characters, this, this company that is struggling. He sandwiches Jesus between a traitor on one side and deserters on the other. In verses 17 through 20, we're introduced to Judas the traitor. During the Passover meal, Jesus shares in in verse 18 with everyone that's present that he is going to be betrayed. This is the word that Mark has used up to this point in the Gospel of of Mark, and he's going to use in an increasing frequency through the rest of the Gospel that he uses elsewhere to be someone who is seized, someone who's apprehended and handed over. Now, this isn't new for the disciples. Jesus has been preparing them since Peter's declaration that Jesus is the Christ, that he's going to be handed over, that he's going to be given to the religious rulers who are going to condemn him, who are going to beat him, and they are going to hand him over, if you'll remember, to the Roman authorities who are going to kill him. The shocking element in this is that the one who's going to do the handing over is sitting among them. Sitting in the room. With Jesus. And so this shock runs through the group 
which was probably more than just the twelve. And they start asking themselves, is it me? Is it me? One after the other. Is it me? So Jesus then shocks everyone further by indicating that it's in fact someone from the very inner circle of his followers, that it is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. I imagine as Jesus says that, he remembers the words of David from Psalm 41, verse 9, even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. The room doesn't know, but Jesus knows. And Judas knows who's the one who's going to betray Jesus. Jesus then expresses his grief by accepting his fate as determined by God's sovereign plan for salvation while simultaneously speaking a word of condemnation over Judas' actions to betray him. And so in this, and I don't have time to dig into this, but in this we see the beautiful melding together of both the providence of God and the freedom of man held side by side with no contradiction. Why did Judas betray Jesus? Because it was God's plan. Why did Judas, Judas betray Jesus? Because he chose to, period. And so there's Judas on one side, who is the traitor. And then we are introduced to the symbol of Jesus' sacrifice, and then you get to the other side of Jesus Christ, and we don't just have, to have a traitor, we have deserters. After finishing the meal, Jesus and his, and his disciples sing a hymn that would have been associated with Passover. Most likely they sang through the Psalms 116 through 118. And then they began their journey to the Garden of Gethsemane. And along the way, Jesus begins meditating on the Old Testament prophecies that are talking about the sacrifice of the Messiah. And he comes to this prophecy in Zechariah, which declares that God will strike his shepherd in order to scatter the sheep so that he then has the ability to bring them back together better than they were before. And as he meditates on this messianic passage, Jesus shares with the 11 who are still with him that even they are going to betray him in their own way. That they're going to desert him before the night is over. And this doesn't sit well with Peter, right? We've seen Peter respond and react pretty quickly and vehemently in the past. And just as vehemently as, as Peter rejected Jesus' first declaration of his need to be sacrificed and the plan of God that he would be sacrificed, Peter now just as vehemently declares that he will never fail. He will never fall. And he throws the other ten under the bus in the moment. Look at what he says. Listen, they're, yeah, they all, of course, they would fall away. But not me, Jesus. When everyone else is gone, I'm going to be here, Jesus. But Jesus not only knows that Scripture is going to be true, he know it, knows it will be true and how it will be true. And he knows that just as vehemently as Peter is declaring his loyalty and the safety of this moment where he's surrounded by his friends, he is just as vehemently going to deny Jesus when he's face to face with his enemies. Peter doesn't want to believe this is true of himself, nor do any of the others, but by their words, they all condemn themselves, declaring that they would go with him to their death. It's not just Peter. Mark says that all of them agreed with Peter. All of them declared their undying allegiance to Jesus Christ and their faithfulness even to the end. And the question that rang around that upper room 
I can hear it ringing off the sides of the building as they're marching through Jerusalem on the way to Gethsemane. And it's the question that rings off of the walls in this room this morning. Is it me? Is it me, Jesus? Am I the one that's going to let you down? Am I the one that's going to fall away? Am I the one that's going to betray you, Lord? And the answer to their question and the answer to my question and our question is a quiet, solemn yes. Yes, it's you. And yes, it's me. Betrayals big, betrayals small. Betrayer one, betrayers all. It's us. We deny him in big ways and small ways throughout our lives. We turn away from him, failing to give him the worship that he deserves. We turn away from him to other things that we desire, that we feel in the moment are going to give us something that Jesus Christ cannot. Where we find temporary pleasures in, just as Judas did when he took the money to betray Jesus Christ. And it's when we see ourselves as these betrayers that we are at that point that our guilt overwhelms us and instead of drawing us towards the Lord, drives us away from the Lord. And that is what we must see, that beyond our corrupt character and beyond ourselves, we have to see into the glory of Jesus Christ, who is the one who hosted the meal in the first place. And we have to look beyond the corruption of our character and beyond the corruption of the character of the disciples, and we have to see instead the beauty of Jesus Christ, who is the host of this meal in the first place. And we see his incredible kindness and his hospitality. One of my wife's spiritual gifts is the gift of hospitality. And it just runs through the women in her family. That when she gathers people together, she is an incredibly hospitable host. And a good host, a hospitable host, anticipates the needs of her guests. And through planning and through her presence is there to provide all that they need. And throughout this passage of Scripture, we see not only Jesus' foresight, but his presence and his hand in absolutely every detail. He is the perfect host. Not only does he work out every single final detail as he is in control of this last moment of his life, he enters into Jerusalem. If you'll remember, the Pharisees and the leaders are looking to kill him. And up to this point, Jesus has stayed the nights outside of the city in Bethany. But now as the Passover um, mandate or the Passover laws require, he has to eat the, fe the feast in Jerusalem. And so he's entering into the lion's den. But he is in control of every detail from the house that they are going to meet in to the people that are going to be, this, be there. He knows everything that's going to happen. He knows where it's going to be and who it is that's going to, to meet their needs. He's prearranged it, but beyond that, he knows who is there and what they're going to do. Throughout this passage of Scripture, we see Jesus knows. He already knows that Judas is going to betray him. He already knows that the disciples are going to deny him and they are going to leave him. Let me ask you, are those the type of people that you would invite to the last meal that you were going to eat on earth? Are those the type of people that you would want around you? Betrayers and deniers? Ones who forsake you and your friendship at the first moment of difficulty? I don't know about you, but that's not who I would want around me in those last moments. 
I'd be clicking that defriend and disinvite button all day long as soon as I knew that somebody had, was going to stab me in the back, but not Jesus. The answer to the question, is it you? Is it me? Yes, it's you. And yes, it's me. And what we get from this is that Jesus not only knew before the disciples abandoned him, before Judas betrayed him, he knows before you abandon him and before you betray him, he knows before I sin that I'm going to do it. And guess what? He loves me anyway. God's not caught off guard by anything that you do in this life. Because God in his perfect omniscience and his knowledge knows the thoughts that you're going to think before you be, they even become words that come out of your mouth. God knows and he loves you anyway. Jesus knew and he invited them anyway. Jesus knew and he chose to be their friend anyway. Jesus knows you and me better than we know ourselves. What in, then does that mean for us? It means that Jesus knows all of your faults and all of your failures and he died for you anyway. He knows what you're going to do before tomorrow, and he invites you anyway. He loves you anyway. He chooses you as his friend and takes pleasure in you anyway, period. Why? Because Jesus Christ is the perfect and faithful friend who never fails and never forsakes us. And since Jesus is the faithful friend of sinners, brothers and sisters, we can find our hope and our joy in his friendship. It's hard to worship a God that we think is perpetually angry with us and disappointed and dislikes us and is unhappy with us. And when that is the God that we see and that we anticipate meeting with, is it any wonder that we don't want to come? That we don't want to gather around his people? That we don't want to be reminded of his presence? That we want to pull back? We find it hard to worship. We find it hard to pray. We find it hard to pick up the Bible and read the Bible because when we think that God is angry with us, then we suffer that fear and that insecurity. And that's natural. But the unnatural truth is that God loves you anyway. He chose you anyway. He chose to die for you anyway. Jesus Christ absorbed every single ounce of God's wrath for your sin, past, present, future, period. If all of God's wrath is swallowed up by Jesus Christ, guess what that means? There's none left. If there's none left, he's not mad at you. He's not disappointed at you. He's not angry with you. He is pleased in Jesus Christ. And all of those who are in Christ receive the pleasure of God. And when we see that God is full of pleasure and joy and pride and happiness in His Son, Jesus Christ, and all of us that are in Jesus Christ are, are recipients of that pleasure, then that becomes the source of our life and our hope and our happiness in God. That becomes the motivation to get up in the morning and get in His Word. Because His Word is not a reminder of how much He hates us. His Word is instead a reminder that He has redeemed us, that He's rescued us, that He saved us, that He loves us, that He chooses us, that He wants to spend eternity with us. 
It's the testimony of the truth over and over and over that he has done everything and all of the promises are yes and amen in Jesus, period. And that's the motivation then when we see in God's word his love for us and we hold that mirror up that then invites us into a deeper fellowship with him through prayer and through obedience and through joining him in the mission that he has left for us on this earth so that other people can experience the same joy and pleasure that we have in Jesus. You're not inviting people to a system of rules and regulations that they have to keep or God is going to zap them within a piece of electricity. You're inviting them into a pleasurable, wonderful, joyful relationship with the God who created the universe, who knows every fault and every failure and loves them anyway. Homosexuality, be danged. All of it, be set aside. God sees. God knows. God loves. And he's inviting us deeper into that relationship. So why should we become people who don't accurately reflect the love and the graciousness of God? Knowing who God is, knowing God's love, knowing God's unfailing pleasure with us then motivates us to stop being disappointed in one another, to stop looking down on one another, to be free to expect our sons and our daughters and our Sunday school classmates and our small group members and our husbands and our wives, expecting them to fail and finding in the gospel of Jesus Christ the power to love them anyway. Because God loves you anyway. He loves you perfectly. He loves you just as he loves Jesus. And it's that friendship that Jesus gives to us that then invites us into an eternity, not just as his friends, but as his family. Because throughout this, Jesus doesn't look at the suffering that is coming. He doesn't look at the betrayal that is coming. He looks through it to the hope of eternity with his friends and his family. Because he says, even as he takes the Lord's Supper, even as he gives new meaning to the Passover, He looks beyond it as he declares, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it in the new kingdom of God. Remember I said that most likely that cup that he picked up was the third cup, the cup of redemption. The fourth cup that finished the meal was the cup of consummation, the reminder that God is going to complete all things. Jesus refused that cup. That cup's on hold until we sit with him at the feast of of the Lamb in the kingdom of God, and he'll take it up, and that's when it's over. You're living in an ongoing feast in which Jesus is the centerpiece and that Jesus invites you to partake of until that day when he will be at the center of a feast, still surrounded by sinners and sufferers and miscreants and misfits and malcontents, that are not sinners and sufferers and miscreants and malcontents anymore because Jesus Christ has done everything necessary that that identity be washed away and we be born anew as sons and daughters of God. That's who you are in Christ. You are God's son. You are God's daughter. And he is pleased with you. So stop being afraid. Stop living with your head down. Stop running 
from God and instead draw near to God and find in Him the satisfaction that can only come when you're in the presence of someone who knows you perfectly and loves you perfectly. And enjoy your life in Christ. Are you living a life filled with enjoyment in Jesus? If not, then you need to look to Jesus today. You need to run to Jesus today. Maybe as your Savior for the very first time, receiving His perfect love, love that you've never experienced before, maybe you need to run to Him again because you've been hiding from Him. You've forgotten who you are and you've lived as a spiritual orphan assuming that God has somehow disowned you when instead He is like that faithful father from the story of the prodigal son who is longing to run to you where you are that He might speak a better word over you than your guilt and your shame speaks to you inside. And you need to hear today the words of a song that I love. A song by Jordan and Jessa titled Loved is Jesus. These are the words. Why are you worried? Why are you burdened down with fear? Look up to Calvary. There on the cross, God's love revealed. All things seen in Jesus, all things of our good, word made flesh to meet us that we might know his love. He did not spare his own son. He gave him up that we might be one. Hallelujah. We are as loved as Jesus. Amen. And amen. Would you bow your heads and go before the Lord? And would you cry out to the God who loves you perfectly to fill you with his love and restore to you the joy of your salvation? And I'll close this in a moment.